0: Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, and I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Professor Shimon Ray. And today, we talk about the importance of linking nutrition research policy and practice through evidence and education. This is quite a technical episode but if you're interested in public health as a doctor, researcher or nutritionist, this one is for you. So without further ado, Shimon, welcome to the show. Thank you Ben. It is such a pleasure to have you on, it's been a long time coming I would suggest.
1: Yes indeed, Um, very pleased to be here and to be able to share little snippets, um, from, uh, my perspective and that of the Ned Pro Global Center.
0: Absolutely. And there is a lot to speak about for sure. Um, but I would love to just for context and I think just to orientate the listeners to learn a little bit more about you and what got you into this nutrition space in the first place.
1: Sure. So, um, I'm often asked this question, as you can imagine, um, <laughs> especially as um, I'm a, a medical doctor, as well as a, a registered public health nutritionist. Um, but uh, really, I was a unicorn from the beginning, if I <laughs> might say that, because I did uh, an intercalated degree in nutrition and then undertook some uh, extended nutrition research. Uh, as a medical undergraduate um, and sandwiched my nutrition degree and research uh, in the middle of medicine that took me to uh, rural nepal for a couple of years where i studied the big four nutritional deficiencies um, in a tibetan refugee population um, Mm. in the Mm. himalayan foothills and focused particularly on iron deficiency anemia in pregnant and lactating um, mothers and uh, that really catapulted me into a position where I graduated as a medical doctor and became a public health nutritionist at virtually the same moment and uh, both have therefore stayed with me um, intertwined ever since. That's incredible.
0: And in Nepal, is that quite prevalent?
1: Iron deficiency, anemia in pregnant women?
0: Just to dive into that a um, little bit. So,
1: so indeed, uh, to, it is prevalent. And to give you context, um, so I qualified 20 uh, years ago. And the time when I was doing research was almost a quarter century ago. But <laughs> it is, uh, <laughs> indeed, uh, puts a a, a a number on my age. But um the big four nutritional problem problems at the time were mainly iron deficiency anemia, protein energy, malnutrition, iodine deficiency, and vitamin A deficiency. And um, we've seen a, a sort of reduction in the uh, prevalence, incidence and prevalence of iodine deficiency. Mm-hmm. But uh, interestingly, iron deficiency anemia Um, is uh, still highly prevalent and very brittle and is a long-term problem that um, now requires different solutions to the ones that um, perhaps haven't worked so well over the last couple of decades. So long story short, um, some of the things from uh, 20, 25 years ago are still just as relevant, um, but uh, we now know... um, what works and what doesn't, and therefore, there are opportunities to do different.
0: Right. Okay. That's really important. And I guess iron deficiency is one of those where I I don't think it's looked at enough in a way. Um, I remember reading a paper looking at iron iron levels and, and IQ, for example, in growing children. Um, so it's hugely important. And I, I, I'm not sure the, the dietary quality out in Nepal either. Uh, do you still see instances of kwashiorkor and things like that? Or is that less?
1: Well, protein energy malnutrition in all of its forms is still a major problem in most low to middle income countries um, at uh, both ends of the age spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, it still is a problem. There have been some changes in the patterns and distribution of protein energy malnutrition, but we also know that it's part of the double burden, even in the so-called developed world. So it's um, unfortunately just as much of a a problem as it uh, ever was. Um, But as I say, with um, sort of changing form um, and uh, we now have a few more insights and solutions than we did before yes um so so uh, a lot to do still but we know a bit more about how to perhaps uh, approach it
0: right okay well well that is certainly a positive i think um if anything we've got some better interventions Now, shifting slightly, you ended up, throughout all of this, you ended up founding NEDPRO, I believe in, and correct me if I'm wrong, Schumann, but 2008, you founded NEDPRO?
1: That's right. Um, So NEDPRO stands for the Need for Nutrition Education and Innovation Programme. However, in 2008, it was founded as the Need for Nutrition Education Projects. Uh, n- nowadays we don't expand the acronym we simply uh refer to the nedpro global center for nutrition and health which is um, sort of a representation of how we've evolved from project to program to a global center but mm-hmm. going back to 2008 um that's correct that is when it was officially founded
0: so it- it is amazing how it's evolved in just looking at the history, even in the last few years that I've been um, very happy to be involved in and follow your journey. Um, who is NEPRO for and what does it do? What's its main mission or vision?
1: So NEPRO is really quite diverse in terms of the um, individuals and institutions it involves and also targets. But going back to the beginning, um, so where all of this came from was really that over 2005 to 2007, um, I was involved in the um, UK division of the Council of Europe Alliance for Improvement of uh, Nutrition in Healthcare. Uh, That alliance took origin from... uh, Quite a large number of recommendations coming out of the Council of Europe, which um, you'll know is different to the European Union, of course, mm-hmm. uh, as the UK still remains part of the Council of Europe. And those recommendations led to really um, a two year task and finish collaboration of multiple organizations from the public sector, from the third sector, and also from the private sector. That led to the establishment of the 2007 Nutrition Action Plan by the then Department of Health in England. Mm -hmm. And um, in that Nutrition Action Plan, there was just a, a, a tiny paragraph that said the Need for Nutrition Education project will be formed as one of the outcomes of the task and finish work of the Council of Europe alliance and that was fully supported by the 2007 action plan that then led to um, successful funding Um, so first funding came from uh, the national institute of health research which was brand new at the time and with some matched funding from industry partners and also from the uh, national health service And uh, with that sort of tripartite funding, we uh, launched the Need for Nutrition Education Project, um, uh, which has since then been known as NEDPRO, uh, in Cambridge in 2008.
0: Amazing. And what would you say the main mission of NEDPRO is?
1: So the mission today is really to look across... um, Nutrition knowledge, I would say from molecules to mankind and to <laughs> take the uh, usable um, knowledge bites from those different domains to try and improve mm-hmm. health, well-being in society. Um, back in 2008, our main mission was to empower health professionals. That remains an important part of our mission. But today, we um, are involved in targeting not only health professionals, but a very wide range of professionals who form part of the interdisciplinary uh, chain that makes up um, what is uh, nutrition. Um, So, we look at that from the perspective of how nutrition sits at the intersection of let's say, education systems, health systems, and food systems. But we also uh, look at how to interface directly with policymakers on one hand and members of the public on the other. So um, I think we have a multi-pronged approach today, but one that stemmed from health professionals and still is heavily centred around health professionals, particularly in some aspects of what we do
0: brilliant and i guess my description because we were speaking about this offline the way i described it which i think is maybe slightly simplistic having having you describe it now is um ned Pro links research research or nutrition research and nutrition policy and how that influences clinical practice would you say that's a too simplistic or even wrong way of describing it
1: Oh, no, not at all. I mean, um, really, if you look at um, uh, how we work, we we start by identifying knowledge gaps in either policy or practice. Then we look at usable um, research-supported evidence that Mm -hmm. we can synthesize or collate to fill those knowledge gaps. If such evidence does not exist, we actually instigate um, further primary research in order to fill those gaps but again that journey comes back to um, synthesizing and collating evidence whether it's um, primary or secondary to form um, educational interventions specifically geared at shifting knowledge attitudes and practices um, Primarily for practitioners, but also, as I said, for policymakers and the public. So really a a simple way would be, uh, as you correctly said, to uh, connect uh, research, policy and practice, but through evidence and education.
0: Perfect. I love that. I will add the evidence through evidence and education at the end of my descriptions next time I have to explain it to someone. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> um, recently, it was announced there was a launch of the, the nutrition program in the medical curriculum, or I'll rephrase that. So the nutrition program in the medical curriculum was recently announced. And I know you have close ties with the AFN and many other allied organizations. How was NEDPRO involved in that?
1: So um, the Association for Nutrition, um, as many will know, is the independent voluntary regulator for uh, nutrition professionals who are not dietitians, but really work across six different specialisms, one of which is public health nutrition, which is the specialism that I belong to. And um, for a number of years, the AFN has been convening what's known as uh, an interprofessional group that um, consists of multiple stakeholders and experts from different parts of the broad church that is nutrition or indeed those who would be um, end users of nutrition knowledge in a medical or healthcare context. So what the AFN interprofessional group did was to take the previous curriculum for undergraduate uh, medical nutrition education. which used to be held by the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and their intercollegiate group on human nutrition. And they um, formally uh, updated that curriculum, and I would say transformed it into really a new fit for purpose curriculum in line with um, modern medical education as it stands in the UK and um, providing a blueprint to incorporate nutrition at multiple levels um, of UK uh, medical curricula at the uh, undergraduate stage. Um, and that curriculum was recently officially launched. Um, uh, I had the opportunity, um, along with colleagues from NEDPRO Global Centre, to be part of the intercollegiate, uh, I beg your pardon, the interprofessional um, consultative group and uh, really in many ways the launch of the curriculum uh, is a pivotal moment for us as well as we have been on a sort of 13-year parallel journey during which um, we've undertaken many different types of um, action research projects which look at what works and what doesn't and uh, tests different strategies for incorporating um, medical nutrition education at an undergraduate level as well as other levels of um, medical and healthcare training so um, to mark the launch of that um, curriculum we also put together a collation of Um, 18 peer-reviewed articles that we've produced over the past 13 years in collaboration with uh, many other um, individuals and institutions that really provide a little bit of um, the evidence base that helps to um, implement the uh, curriculum now on the ground
0: Yes, that article is now live on the NedPro website, so I'll be sure to link it in the show notes for for the listeners to access if they're interested in that. Thank you. You're very welcome. Um, it was interesting what you said, you know, about educating medical students around nutrition. I remember early on, um, early on we were having conversations about this, and there was. A certain few, which we didn't want this to happen because they thought it would take away from the work of nutritionists and I had the complete opposite view I was like as soon as doctors um, and the medical professions know about the importance of nutrition they are more likely to refer out to it and um, or more likely to suggest it to their patients and um, and I think that's hugely important. And any way that we can reduce the burden on the NHS is beneficial overall and to everyone.
1: Absolutely. I, I think um, the delivery of nutrition services at all levels ought to be seen as a multidisciplinary effort. Um, and there are certain common denominators that um, individuals from all healthcare professions probably ought to know as part of their minimum knowledge set or skill set. But there are several elements which are more specialised, where it would be more appropriate, say, for example, for a public health nutritionist in primary or early secondary prevention, or a registered dietitian in uh, secondary prevention, uh, clinical intervention, and tertiary prevention to actually um, take the reins, but they can only do that if they um, receive a transfer of care for a patient who will often be seen by either a medical doctor or another type of healthcare professional um, who wouldn't know to recognize nutrition-related problems or indeed refer onwards Mm -hmm. uh, beyond a certain point if they didn't have that fundamental understanding and basic competence so this is really about defining the common denominator which gives a stronger bedrock for all of the nutrition related professions to stand on um, and quite to the contrary it does not uh, take away from the remit of any of the professions specialized in nutrition.
0: Yes, I completely agree with you. And thank you so much for explaining, explaining it and um, going back to what you said before, what you mentioned before with regards to, um, the purpose of NedPro, I would love for you if, if there is a, a project that you have in mind that, um, really outlines how you have linked, uh, policy research and education if there is a key project
1: that you had in mind? Well, in fact, the um, flagship projects that we um, try to uh, utilize across our different regional networks are two that do this at different levels. So one is known as NEPHELP, another acronym, <laughs> uh, the Nutrition <laughs> Education Policy for Healthcare Practice Uh, initiative. What that does is it attempts to create evidence and resources to shift the default educational policy around nutrition in health systems. So really we use within that initiative not one but a multitude of interconnected projects in order to nudge that policy. And um, that's very much connected with nutrition in, in health systems um, now another flagship project which um, uh, has been uh, has become quite prominent of late mm-hmm. uh, I might say um, is our mobile teaching kitchen initiative yes. um, and uh, in fact recently as part of a UK-India collaborative group uh, in Cambridge Uh, this project along with seven other groups won the University of Cambridge Vice-Chancellor's award. Now the reason for that is because it uses an approach which um, actually sits at the juxtaposition of food systems and education systems and um, looks at ways to shift the uh, default policy when it comes to uh, nutrition literacy and how that can be improved, uh, particularly in groups with um, an educationally challenged background mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, how some of the insights from this very innovative approach of uh Doing all of this using culinary methods can be um, translated to some of the um, generic insights that can change our policy thinking, particularly around marginalised populations. Um, this particular piece has now been lateralized to... Um, Countries outside where this first started, which was India. Mm-hmm. Um, so, recently, this initiative has uh, undergone a first phase in Mexico, and we're uh, knee deep in discussions with UK counterparts about using this uh, sort of um, uh, I- innovation uh, right here in the UK.
0: That sounds amazing. I mean, you're saying you're spreading it. To different countries but i was wondering because india is obviously massive so how are you um educating the various different populations i guess within india with this kitchen is there multiple or does it travel around a certain region
1: good question so country of 1.3 billion people how yes. does a tiny project <laughs> possibly uh, make a dent um So, our role is not to actually roll out um, population-level mass education programmes. Where we sit is really um, at the sort of juxtaposition of um, research and innovation. And what we can do is build action research models which bring new insights And those insights can lead to new or strengthened recommendations. And so it's very important for us to use this small but in-depth project to not necessarily achieve greater breadth ourselves, but to achieve enough depth and collect enough data by asking the right questions and piloting the right interventions to then hand um, a much more sensitive and specific toolkit of recommendations to policymakers who can then either take the generic elements of those and utilize them in existing programs, Mm -hmm. which are at mass or population level, or indeed spread and scale the innovation of the mobile teaching kitchen. Who are these policymakers? You might Uh, wonder well actually asked my next question for me there (laughs) (laughs) so um they're not just government agencies of course government agencies play an important role um, but so does the charity sector and so do health professionals who have an important voice in all of this but importantly um industry has a very strong voice um, particularly when it comes to um, food so in terms of policymakers, we need to look at government agencies but also um, third sector and private uh, sector agencies or organizations which are in all of those domains health systems food systems and education systems an additional piece which we've been quite sensitive to of late is the impact of everything on sustainability and climate change and therefore uh, that sort of also brings in another element of policy discussion. But going back to your question, um, so our role is really to take those deep dives, um, mine the sort of uh, insights and data that then allow those with the big machinery to go forth. And uh, I'm pleased to say that we have been able to um, have the ear of organizations and agencies who've uh, taken up our recommendations to date and, and that process continues. I mean this is this
0: is truly amazing in my eyes. Um I, I assume the the Indian MTK I've shortened it already <laughs> to an abbreviation. The the mobile teaching kitchen was almost like a proof of concept. And then you assume that this will be spread out to other countries and then if the um the ideas and the education behind this well, I say the education behind this, if you can sufficiently educate a population, then that will influence the policy makers to hopefully make a decision, maybe scale it up or use that idea um, and almost innovate to something entirely different for more for a larger scale.
1: Uh, absolutely. I think it was a number of things that came together in, <laughs> uh, dare I say, organic fashion Um <laughs> So, so back in 2015, um, so uh, NedPro had a presence at the World Congress of Public Health, which was hosted in India that year. There, we pledged to go global, and that was the moment from which we uh, began our transformation to a global centre. So that meant um, starting a series of regional networks. Um, in different parts of the world. Um, We now have 12 regional networks that span six continents and between them cover uh, 38 countries. So it really allows us to touch um, uh, multiple populations and um, I would say um, multiple uh, types of um, development, um, often with common denominators. So uh, NEPHELP, the Nutrition Education Policy Project and MTK, the Mobile Teaching Kitchen, represent two of those lateral projects, one of which had its origins in the UK, one which had its origins in India, but both providing proofs of concept, as you put it, Mm -hmm. um, where the other uh, regional networks can um, take the proven elements of these projects, um, but then adapt them to regional context and uh, therefore uh, create um, uh, different versions that that work in different population contexts. Now, in India, uh, what we were looking to do was simply uh, an exemplar project which was going to be task and finish, What we thought we would challenge is this um, paradigm that those in marginalised populations, um, by virtue of their economic and educational background, um, really need to be, um, in a way, lifted out of um, poverty, um, almost in a a unidirectional manner. The the way we thought to challenge this is to ask the question as to whether we could lift those individuals out of poverty, but give them the knowledge and skills to become nutrition educators through culinary means. So what we managed to do was create a group of champions who became... Culinary health educators, uh, not only for their own um, so-called segment of society, but in a way where they can actually impact all levels of society by using a mobile unit to um, serve up not only meals, but also uh, serve with it uh, a very good, uh, healthy side of health education. And they do that not only for um, people who are, say, for instance, uh, blue collar workers, but all the way up to white collar uh, people like you and I. And and so what this does is it challenges the paradigm that the um, act of pulling people out of poverty, as I said, is unidirectional because those people are not only coming out of poverty, but they're giving back to society, including um, the level of society that pulled them out in the first place. And um, that's really poignant, particularly in uh, low to middle income countries where affluent echelons of society are particularly burdened by uh, nutrition sensitive, non-communicable diseases, whether that's type 2 diabetes, Mm -hmm. obesity, cardiovascular disease. So um, there's a disproportionately positive impact back to those who um, are really involved in pulling these people up. Not only that, um, the mobile unit allows um, these champions to... Uh, not only create these template-based meals which are nutritionally complete and, uh, in fact, provide a template for discussing um, uh, health and nutrition matters with the public, but they also get to use this as a micro-enterprise and a source of livelihood, and um, that also makes it self-sustaining, and therefore... Uh, once such an initiative is off the ground, um, it sort of has uh, a little bit of an exponential impact that um, runs on its own steam. And there are lots of generic elements to this whole process, which can be lateralized into other initiatives. And it doesn't have to be a mobile unit or a teaching kitchen, but Mm -hmm. other initiatives that are trying to tackle uh, nutrition and public health problems like those big four that were such a problem um, uh, two and a half decades ago and continue to be and maybe what is needed is not just doing the same thing again um, if it hasn't worked but trying new things such as this innovation.
0: It sounds amazing and just to touch upon that you're absolutely right you need to to innovate you can't just do the same thing over and over again and expect a different outcome isn't that something like the definition of madness <laughs> i don't know um, i believe so <laughs> um yeah and you mentioned the sustainability which is a really interesting element um and it makes a lot of sense but i don't understand or i, I haven't linked the way that people learning about nutrition education and how to cook and culinary skills, I should say, and, um, and how that would lead to employability, I guess because you're teaching them how to cook and therefore they could become a chef or is that is there other ways that you envisioned or, or had in mind?
1: Uh, absolutely. So, so, um, using culinary methods to teach, particularly in this particular, uh, innovation or intervention means that we use, a SEDOTO approach, which stands for see one, do one, teach one. Um, A SEDOTO approach and its effectiveness can be measured through um, KAP studies. So that's the um, collection of data around K for knowledge, A for attitudes, P for practices. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we look at whether the see one, do one, teach one spiral approach of learning augments knowledge attitudes and practices but if you think about it it's also like a funnel because the people who are essentially teaching one at the end are inviting others to see one who will then do one and teach one and so there's a a cascade Um, and um, what happens in this process is we have looked at a couple of educational psychology constructs um, namely uh, mentalizing skills and cognitive flexibility and what we seem to be finding and um, we're still looking at data in this area is that um, using a vocational method of teaching concepts not only the cooking skills but the nutrition knowledge that goes with it or the health Knowledge that has to accompany it um, it circumvents literacy barriers, and even people with lower baseline cognitive flexibility and lower baseline mentalizing skills um, they can actually achieve a greater shift in knowledge attitudes and practices uh, perhaps compared with more traditional methods of training um, mm-hmm. also. It's really interesting to see that there's a shift in cognitive flexibility and mentalizing skills through this sort of process. Um, Now, if you are familiar with um, pedagogical methods, um, you'll know that um, theory of mind um, in most education systems develops within the sort of first five years of life, give or take. And... um, Cognitive flexibility and mentalizing skills are important constructs of theory of mind. And this is why the early years curricula focus so much on learning through play and doing things with our eyes, ears, and hands. So things which are tangible. Um, And so this is very much uh, a method of returning to that sort of baseline and trying to reprogram learning uh, from a place where one is able to um, take up new knowledge and new skills um, without having to navigate all of the literacy barriers that sometimes go with formal education how is this connected to livelihoods so yes uh, people can become chefs no doubt they can become entrepreneurs by Uh, learning how to make low cost, sustainable, nutritionally very um, high value and complete um, meals which are tasty and also um, easy uh, to prepare. Um, So that makes for a very good Food uh, business or a micro enterprise, as we call it, Mm -hmm. but very importantly, because of the knowledge of nutrition and health concepts, um, these individuals can also become uh, part of the auxiliary healthcare workforce, particularly focused on um, diseases related to nutrition or indeed uh, food safety
0: right so there's a lot of elements there thank you very much for clarifying that it makes a lot of sense and i guess something <laughs> which i can't get out of my head is the idea of when you're giving this nutrition education serving a delicious meal at the end of it makes the whole lecture and piece much more appetizing excuse the pun um but, you know, much more digestible, again, another pun. <laughs> but the, the idea just that it's it's much easier to assimilate and people will be much more engaged if you're kind of making the meals and showing them how healthy it is in a practical way. Um, I, I feel maybe that's sometimes lost in conventional teaching.
1: I think it can be. Um, but also if you think about it, we eat meals... Um, uh, on plates or whatever other utensil we use but there are certain kind of dietary patterns that we follow and um, those patterns if you break them down are comprised of a series of recurring plates if you think of each plate as a template and let's say that roughly in the cycle of a week um, a dietary pattern um, undergoes recurrence so what you would tend to find is that there are if you lined up all of the plates so let's say for argument's sake we eat three meals a day seven days a week so let's say there are 21 plates so let's let's line them all up um so pictures of the plates of what we eat so what we'll tend to find um if we put the plate that is Most ideal that adheres the most to let's say a recommended dietary pattern if you find that one plate that fits that the best put that in the middle and then arrange other plates on either side of that um, as they begin to deviate from that um, so-called ideal dietary pattern you'll actually find uh, let's say that you know um, For those people who are free-living, healthy individuals, there's a sort of leeway where the plates towards the two tail ends tend to be somewhat different from the ideal dietary pattern. And then if you put the overlay of um, risk factors or disease on that, um, the room for movement uh, becomes less. Now, if you think of that sort of paradigm, um, it becomes easy to educate people using a series of menu templates and pictorially lining those up and showing them what sorts of um, leeway you can have for a healthy, free-living individual versus those who have, uh, as I said, the overlay of disease underlying conditions and risk factors. So seeing that, um, visualising it, And then being able to replicate that in a kitchen setting, demonstrating it to others whilst talking through it, is a lot more powerful than um, being able to write everything down and uh, sometimes uh, simply extract the numbers and then throw those numbers back at people saying, these are the different percentages of X, Y, and Z that you need to conform to. Um, I hope that makes some sense.
0: That definitely does. I've never really heard it described that way. So thank you very much for outlining it. Just to pivot slightly um, onto something which I think was and still is in everyone's minds, which is the the COVID pandemic. Uh, COVID affected everyone very differently. And that included how people were working. And it seemed to me, at least, that NEDPRO really shifted and I guess stepped up to the plate in a way um, and even created its own COVID microsite and spoke about how nutrition related to COVID, etc. Um, and I thought looking back on this, that this was maybe slightly outside of the remit of Ned Pro, um, but you might tell me this is completely wrong. Um, this is why you're here. <laughs> so what, could you please describe or explain the premise behind this?
1: Sure. So... <laughs> It it is and isn't outside of the remit. I mean, broadly, the the kind of four things we we do are training professionals, um, uh, implementation, primary research, and addressing inequalities. Um, Now, within all of that, um, as I was saying before, we start the process by looking at where the knowledge gaps are on the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, when the pandemic started, there was a massive Knowledge gap in relation to everything to do with COVID, yeah. but of course um, there are many highly able groups um, uh, who have done wonders um, this past sort of year and a half in in cracking uh, many of those unknowns. Um, but really, back in March of 2020, um, we didn't see a focal point for the convergence of nutrition knowledge related to either the uh, primary or secondary prevention or indeed uh, intervention in terms of COVID-19. So we put together a dedicated nutrition and COVID-19 task force. Uh, We did this within uh, a few weeks of the uh, pandemic um, being declared And um, initially, that task force met weekly, and nowadays we meet monthly. In fact, we will be meeting later uh, today. Um, And that task force is, um, again, a multidisciplinary group. Um, So there are doctors, dietitians, nutritionists, other healthcare professionals, as well as others from education policy who are able to provide a continuous horizon scan in relation to um, any usable quality nutrition evidence and how that can be mapped either to primary prevention in terms of specific protection or health promotion, secondary prevention in terms of early detection and prompt intervention but what the nutritional considerations are alongside other medical and public health measures and also uh, tertiary prevention particularly in terms of uh, management of what's now known as long covid Uh, there's another piece also that we've been a couple of other pieces i should say that we've been very interested in under the remit of this task force Um, One really um, in the wider world on how COVID has impacted food and nutrition insecurity. Um, And uh, the other one in um, the acute uh, clinical context and uh, how nutrition can potentially modulate uh, clinical outcomes in either intensive care or or ward-based settings alongside other um, standard medical approaches. So uh, we teamed up with our flagship journal, BMJ Nutrition Prevention and Health, from the outset. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, this enabled us to do two things. So um, three, in fact. Um, So one is we commissioned a special collection in BMJ Nutrition on new evidence um, underpinning um, nutrition and COVID-19. And we have a whole plethora of peer-reviewed articles in BMG Nutrition uh, across all of those domains that I previously described. Um, and um, a few of those contributions are from us, as we are also researchers. But many of those con- contributions are from further afield um, and from geographically diverse groups. Um, and then on top of that, what we've done is, as you pointed out, put together a microsite, which is updated on a monthly basis. And that microsite um, looks at not only what BMJ Nutrition is publishing, but all usable evidence in different categories around that, guidelines, segmented by the different regions where we're operating but also segmented by different topics and of course we can't talk about nutrition in isolation so one part of our microsite looks at the big picture so um, public health and prevention at large and another part is dedicated to nutrition resources the third thing which we have now done um, uh, for About nine months um, is uh, we have a digital knowledge hub known as ICANN, the International Knowledge Application Network Hub for Nutrition. Um, What that does is every month it actually takes the material from the microsite and presents that as an evidence collection for online discussion. So the ICANN platform is open to one and all from anywhere and everywhere to register. It's completely free of charge. And um, what we do through that is the evidence collections are presented in the form of evidence maps, which are updated on a month to month basis. And as people leave their comments and questions on the discussion boards, that enables us to look more closely at um, how the evidence collection can be made uh, usable, not just in the um, context of the UK. As we're headquartered here, there's sometimes a little bit of a a bias, um, uh, particularly around the way we we do things in this part of the world. But as we're a global center, it's really important for us to look at whether these evidence collections are usable um, in far corners of the world, and 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 this uh, digital platform enables us to have that multi-way dialogue. So I think going back to your question, was it in our remit? So <laughs> we never saw <laughs> we never saw infectious diseases as part of our remit. Um, we did see part of our remit being filling knowledge gaps. Now having done this 18 months on, um, whatever the future of the pandemic, I think that as there's a critical mass of work in this area, uh, we intend to continue our uh, investigations into nutrition and COVID-19 for the foreseeable future in the form of uh, action research and knowledge translation.
0: Perfect, well, you have a mountain of work <laughs> that that you've completed um, and I will link to as much as I possibly can including the microsites of which the microsite and the other um projects that you've outlined hugely hugely fascinating it certainly has been to f- follow your journey anyway um I know we're running out in time out of time, and um, we've got the last three questions that I ask everyone that comes on the show. But before I ask them, can I ask you how people can get involved with NedPro if they would like to?
1: Sure. So the NedPro Global Center is um, a research intensive think tank, and uh, generally we have membership by invitation, which means that we invite individuals and institutions to become members uh, particularly if they're making a recurring contribution to one or more of our existing projects and initiatives so the uh, best way is to look at the our work section or and the about us section uh, on our website and to get in touch with info at nedpro.org.uk or with myself um, uh, and i'm at s.ray at nedpro.org.uk to see if you might wish to make a contribution particularly if that's an ongoing contribution to one or more of our projects or initiatives however there are three children that the nedpro global centre They're all three years old. They were all um, born in 2018 during our 10th anniversary. One is our flagship journal, BMJ Nutrition. So you can get involved by publishing in the journal, but also it's an open access journal. You can write response articles, which don't cost anything, um, particularly looking at published articles and submitting your responses, which if approved will be published. Um, Our other children are the International Academy of Nutrition Educators, which um, we uh, co-manage with the Society for Nutrition Education and Behaviour, Monash Nutrition and BMJ. And that is a subscribing membership academy, which provides a whole raft of benefits, but it provides a career pipeline for those who see themselves as nutrition educators going from associate member to professional member to fellow and so forth. Um, That academy provides a one-on-one mentoring scheme, monthly webinars, journal clubs, and a a whole bunch of other CPD benefits. Um, All subscribing members of the academy automatically have the opportunity to be more involved in NEDPRO projects. And uh, finally, um, the ICANN, International Knowledge Application Network 25, as it's called. Um, what we're trying to do by 2025 is really put key evidence collections on there. I've spoken about the COVID-19 one. We have a cardiometabolic evidence collection and various others to follow. That's completely free to register on um, if you go to ICANN. ikan global And... Be part of the discussion Um, and from those discussions will be database decisions. Um, So be part of that difference. And those are the ways in which you can be involved.
0: Perfect. I'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much, Shuman. And on to the last three questions before we both have to dash. (laughs) So and the first one being what is the most impactful health change that you have made in your life
1: and why? So um, we hear a lot about lifestyle medicine nowadays um, and um, broadly speaking I guess the four pillars of that are uh, nutrition, sleep, um, mind and movement. Uh, I'm still working on the movement bit I must confess um, (laughs) and I've certainly had a lot more sleep um, since the pandemic started and we've all been working uh, virtually, we are a fully virtual digital global centre, um, but I think the most impactful one has been Mind, and um, many years before um, colleagues and I founded the NEDPRO Global Centre, I had the opportunity to um, train in mindfulness and meditation, and I um, Almost two decades later um, uh, I looked back to find that in fact many of those little things um, have all added up to help navigate the big things along the way and um, that led me to also undertake some uh, refresher training in uh, mindfulness and meditation and I would say that out of those four pillars of lifestyle medicine, if you uh, call it that, mm-hmm. um, that aspect of mind has been the most profound um, for me in terms of a change I made um, probably a couple of decades ago and and one where um, I'm uh, still refreshing, still learning, and still continuing to make small changes that... I hope, ultimately can make a big difference, sometimes incognito, but a big difference nonetheless.
0: Brilliant. I love that one. Um, The second question, how can healthcare, and we'll have to adapt this one, I think, but how can healthcare become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we spoke about today? But I think we can integrate this and specifically talk about the kind of projects that you've um, outlined today.
1: Well, well, I think, I'd like to think that um, what we provide are various examples of implementation um, of nutrition in healthcare. And if you think about the um, implementation pathways, they follow, uh, they often can follow something known as the knowledge to action cycle. Now, um there are certain actions that are needed in healthcare, and there are certain knowledge sets that are required behind those actions. Um, And really, it's about looking holistically at both the knowledge and actions, not separating nutrition versus another discipline versus another, um, and then finding those pathways that allow those holistic knowledge sets to result in holistic actions. And it's all about defining that path in between, and I do believe we provide a few examples of that.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Shimon. And finally, can you please provide the listeners with three quick tips to help improve their health and well-being from today?
1: Well, <laughs> my three tri- my 3 tips, um, I almost said tricks there, but they're not tricks at all, are, are really to to live, laugh, and love. And I I think that um, that sounds a little bit fluffy, but I would say that um, really um, thinking about um, the intention behind uh, everything that we do, asking ourselves, you know, why are we doing it? Do we really need to do it? What difference is it going to make? Um, But also along the way um, to actually not take things quite so, not take life quite so seriously to start with the intention of uh, doing something that is necessary, worthwhile, enjoyable, but also being flexible and uh, really thinking about um, impact as the destination, Uh, whatever level of impact that may be, uh, whether that's explicit or implicit. So intention, implementation, impact along this pathway, um, tread it lightly, live, laugh and love along the way and don't take life too seriously. That can lead to a massive improvement on health and well-being by removing a lot of the sort of smaller stresses that often add up on a day-to-day basis.
0: Schumann, I absolutely love that um i think that's brilliant those would probably be my three quick tips as well i have to say i've thoroughly enjoyed this it's amazing to see everything that ned pro and yourself are involved in Um i'll link to everything that we've discussed in the show notes i want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and i really really do hope that we can do this again soon
1: thank you very much i've uh enjoyed it myself and uh Uh, Really looking forward to hearing all your other podcasts and uh, what a rich tapestry this makes. Thank you for doing this.
0: Thank you, Shimon. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for all the editing and thank you all for your support.